From war across the globe, to regulating speech, to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Get yours at Mises.org Nashville 23. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. George, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Bob, thanks for having me. (laughs) It's an honor. (laughs) <laughs> appreciate that. So I see that you've got your uh, your T-shirt on. You're all ready. For yeah. the, so for the folks listening to the audio version, he's got a T-shirt that says CBDC that you know is of the same font as ACDC. Um, by the way, so when did you have that made? Like, at what point did you realize that, gee, a lot of my work now is going to involve these CBDCs and I should have a funny T-shirt? I started talking about CBDCs pretty much when I first started my channel in 2019. And what was funny is back then, Bob, everyone was calling me a conspiracy theorist. Everyone really? was saying, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, George, you're a tinfoil hatter. You're Alex Jones. I used to like your videos, but now you've really lost. Now you've gone too far. Unsubscribe. You know, <laughs> I used well, you to know get, yeah, before we jump into that, sudden, it's just mainstream news. Yeah. Also, for the benefit of some listeners who you, know, you might be on their, on their radar. Um, yeah. Can you just just take a few minutes just to explain like what? what your conventional background was, and then when did you start doing videos? And in the beginning, was it mostly just like, like, you know, real estate transactions, yeah, and then you yeah. got more, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, so I retired in 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I retired, I, I wanted to invest my own money. And I didn't want to subcontract that out. So I started to learn, you know, try to learn how to invest. And I stumbled across uh, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series. It was back mm-hmm. in 2012 on YouTube. And I didn't know anything about interest rates. I didn't know what the Fed was. I didn't know what a yield curve bond market. I knew absolutely nothing. But man, that that free to choose series really resonated with me Mm -hmm. from all my years as being an employee, an employer, an entrepreneur, et cetera. And then I started reading Thomas Sowell, and that got me into a lot of the Austrian stuff. And I started uh, watching videos from Jim Rogers and Jim Grant and Doug Casey and Rick Rule and Peter Schiff and and Tom Woods and you and everyone else. And uh, that's what really shaped my my, my thinking. But it, it shaped it because it resonated with my real life experience, you know, as mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. So anyway... Uh, I got involved with real estate investing, so I wanted to buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive in 2012. Good time to do it. Uh, then fast forward to 2019, I'd been doing this not only in the United States, but down here in Colombia and in South America. And I was doing it to such a degree in South America that I thought it would make a good TV show, uh, just like one of those HG TV shows that you see on right, uh, right. Mm-hmm. up in the States. So anyway, I actually did a TV show down here. I was the executive producer. I had to do the whole thing myself, hire the editors, the camera crew. I was on a local station called Telemedellin. 
after the first season, uh, it was a big hit, very popular. Uh, we it took was a, a hit break. in the U.S. or in Colombia? No, in Colombia here and okay. just in Medellin. It was just uh-huh. on the local station here. And so we had big plans to grow it all over South America. And, and But anyway, uh, we took a break and I wanted to keep the employees busy, the camera people and the editors and whatnot. So that's why I started the YouTube channel. But my passion from 2012 has always been macro. It's always been economics. Now, I just got involved with real estate. I enjoyed it, but I just kind of did that as an investment. So I knew a lot about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, initially when we started the YouTube channel, I thought, man, I'd really like to do videos talking about macro, but no one's going to watch a video on that. So initially, that was my thought, you know. Right, right. So initially I started doing the real estate videos. No one watched those. But then when I kind of did a few videos here and there on macroeconomics, those were the ones that really blew up. So it was perfect. I'm like, great, I'll just keep talking about it. Then the YouTube channel blew up so much that it really didn't make any sense to do the TV show again. Then we started another YouTube channel. Now we got the podcast, and that pretty much brings us to where we are today. What, this would be relevant, or I guess apropos would be a better word to use, that you kind of reminded me of when you said you thought, oh, the, the, the meat and potatoes will be the real estate thing and people aren't yeah. going to care so much. I remember when Ron Paul, what was it, the 2008 campaign, if I'm getting, not getting mixed up, that one, um, and he was going around and he was talking about and the Fed and stuff. And I thought, no, I've, I've been a college professor. Kids do not care about open market operations. Talk about <laughs> bring the troops home and legalize pot. And that's what you run with Ron Paul right. and otherwise the kid. And then they're all chanting and the Fed. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, and, and for folks who don't know, the reason that's relevant is because George on his show has a ball cap that says on the Fed on it that he wears. Right. There it is right, right there. there. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, people like it's why Lou Rockwell one time said something. I'm not going to get the exact quote, but somebody it was at a Mises Institute event, and someone asked, you know, you know, how, how do you guys make it so interesting or whatever? Because normally people, you know, monetary policy, and they and he says something like, well, you know, people if they're getting if they're getting their money stolen, they like to know that, or if they're getting ripped off, you know, that's very interesting or something like that. You know what I mean? It was really like, right, yeah. If you're not presenting it as when the Federal Reserve wants to lower interest rates, it buys assets and that pumps reserves. Like that's boring, but to say your dollar has been debased and these are the people and this is how they kind of do a shell game and they give money to defense contractors. All of a sudden people perk up like, wait, wait, what will come again? What's going on? So yeah, exactly. And people they cause the business. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the things, great things that Austrian economics does is it teaches people to think in terms of thought experiments uh, to mm-hmm. try to figure stuff out instead of just looking at a graph or just looking at the Phillips curve or something like that. And I, I think that resonates with a lot of people because it's, it's more, commonsensical right right yeah that's something yeah before we dive in because again folks we're gonna be talking about cbdc's don't worry uh this isn't a bait and switch but this this does i do want to ask you because the way you just sort of segue into this I'm, i'm wondering is it is this a real thing or is it just sampling bias my observation is it seems like a lot of people in the financial sector who are not ideological per se when i'll go and give a presentation on you know what you and I, George, would know is Austrian business cycle theory, but I won't even call it that. I'll just say, why did the housing market get so crazy? And then I'll show what the federal, you know, Alan Greenspan was in charge, and he lowered interest rates down to one percent and held them there for a year, and blah 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 blah. And the charts are all, you know, the story is internally consistent, and it all makes sense. And people will come up afterwards, and be like, oh, I hated economics in college, but what you just said that was interesting, and it's, look, it actually sounded real. And yeah, yeah. and so, it, to me, it seems like when. Budding Austrians are asking me, what should I do research on? And I say stuff pertaining to the financial markets. 
like they really get it, you know, you know, and whereas if you try to go through like academics are the last people to acknowledge it, like they'll say, oh, no, you, you know, rational expectations, business people can't be fooled by the Fed. What are you talking about, idiot? But um, so anyway, my, my question is, have you found that, too, that like the Austrian school resonates more with like people in the financial sector as opposed to academics? Or is it just the kind of person that's going to like my message is the one who's going to go to an after dinner talk where I'm a speaker. So I see the crowd that was already pre-selected to like my message. The one thing I can say is the majority of people that I met, uh, I've met in my life since doing this that are hedge fund managers that are, uh, you know, wall street types that are, uh, on financial Twitter, not for Austrian economics, but mm-hmm. you know, just like uh, uh, you know, influencers. Let's say mm-hmm. the majority of them really, really resonate with Austrian economics. Okay, and uh, again, I, I think it's because it makes a lot more sense. Um, now, there's some things that that I don't agree with as far as kind of Austrian theories, um, but I think that even if I don't agree with it, it's not because it's inaccurate. I think that there's just more to it. Because there's okay. so many variables, and in yeah. different schools of economics, they like to distill it down to just one thing that is causing X, Y, and Z. When, especially in today's monetary system, usually it's about a hundred million things right. uh, that are contributing to X, Y, and Z. You know, such as interest rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you mentioned, the Austrians are real good about thought experiments to figure out the causality. Like, what's the impact of this one thing? And even if you've got that nailed down, well, if there's some other factor, though, that you're not including, maybe that offsets kind of like a lot of Austrians in 2007 who knew there was a housing bubble were shorting the dollar and they weren't wrong in the stuff they were saying. But I think they overlooked if there's a global financial panic, a lot of people are going to rush to the dollar for safety reasons. Yeah, yeah. Or rush to bonds and that's going to lower rates instead of uh, a a lower uh, time preference, I think, using Austrian terms. But, you know, I think that takes us right into the discussion on CBDCs, Bob, and why it's, this is such a confusing topic for people. They think it seems you know, very straightforward. Okay, they're going to come out with FedCoin, and FedCoin can just track all the purchases. It's Big Brother. They can do negative interest rates. They can just take money out of my account. They can freeze it. Uh, they can lend based on narrative and not on merit. You know, all these things. But it, it's not that simple. And when you actually think of the back-end plumbing, you understand that kind of your preconceived notions might not be accurate. And you might be looking over here when you should be looking way over there. And it allows, I think, the central planners to kind of pull the wool over your eyes. And that's why I kind of pound the table on this stuff with on my videos and on Twitter. And I'm sure we can get into that um, in in more depth. Yeah, yeah right. So, the, yeah, this is your, your central thesis that you've been in. I was falling prey to this too. So why don't we, to make sure we're not losing, I'll let you present the the case first, and then I'll I'll show the the specific thing that even I was perhaps falling into the trap of, where I might have unwittingly been pushing people to support what in effect is a CBDC. So yeah, yeah, I think just it set- starts with time preference, though. Because and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but w- w- with time preference, the idea there is that if time preference is lower. Therefore, you know, because you have more savings, then that means that there's going to be more lending and investment uh, because people have that disposable income, let's say. And because there's more lending and investment or more money to lend and, then for, and therefore investment, asset prices go up, therefore yields go down. And that is really what drives interest rates. Is that, do I have it right? Well, for the asset prices going up, I mean, 
bond prices for sure. I don't right, know if right, like right. other assets. That's it. Well, I mean, I guess it all kind of goes together that if, if interest rates go down, other things equal every asset that's a future thing goes up because the present discounted value goes up. Yeah, but up. the main key there is that it implies that because there is more money to lend by banks, then the, it, it adjusts the supply-demand dynamic for funds, and therefore interest rates naturally go down. Two reasons, more money, and then also because of what you're talking about with buying bonds and bringing the, the yield down. Right, yeah, yeah. The textbook case, if, if households save more, then the yeah. supply curve of loanable funds shifts to the right, and so the intersection of that and the demand for loanable funds occurs at a lower equilibrium interest rate. Okay, so, so what yeah. I'd like people to do, just for the sake of this video, sure, is let's just assume for a moment that there's no constraint on banks for lending. There's zero constraint. So it, if there's a lot of savings, no savings, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. Banks don't need savings to lend. Uh, they can just extend credit to one another. Let's just assume that that's true. So if that is true, then what we can do is we can have a different type of view of what we would consider money, what the normie would consider money. And that's just basically what their checking account balance is. Uh, but if you understand that that, that that type of money is really just a ledger system, and that's kind of where I'm going with it. Mm -hmm. It's really just a ledger system that be, can be manipulated by banks pretty much any way they want. And therefore, each one of these banks, like Wells Fargo or Bank of America, it just represents a simple ledger of who owes who what. Uh, it, it's, I always use the example of time. And a bank ledger is simply like a clock that it, it, it isn't really time in and of itself, but it's just measuring time. And that's the same thing that these ledgers do. So that's what most people consider, quote unquote, money. You know, it's just basically a commercial bank liability that you can trade for goods and services. So once you kind of well, well, get your... It's, not, it's not even like just the man in the street. The M1, you know, the monetary aggregates, M1 includes, you know, demand deposits held by the public with commercial banks. So yep. yeah, even economists would agree checking account balances from M1 and higher are, are part of the money supply. Yeah, and it gets a little confusing for people because part of the money supply, uh, to your point with M1, is currency and circulation. So mm -hmm. those are green pieces of paper uh, that don't really represent a commercial bank liability. And, and that, you know, you got to think about that in different terms. But, you know, if we look at the global uh, GDP at like 100 trillion, and we assume that 60-70% of the transactions are settled in dollars, that means there's probably 60-70, maybe even north of that, uh, dollars that are, are, are circulating globally, where only, what, 2 trillion are currency in circulation. So you've got another you know, let's just say 65 trillion of these dollars that are actually commercial bank liabilities that were lent into existence and sip, simply exist on a ledger of a bank. Uh, mm -hmm. Just like that time exists on, on a clock, you know, it's just a way of keeping track of who owes who what. So once you understand this, you realize how important the, the ledger is and each ledger for each bank. So what most people think is as a Fed coin or a CBDC or something like this, all that really means is that we have a consolidation of all of these banking ledgers. And before we went live, you referenced the BIS report, and they talk about a global, a global unified ledger uh, that, that, of course, you know, the Klaus Schwab types would control. And so that means that each country would have their own CBDC, but those ledgers, so you'd have all the uh, activity within a country on one ledger. 
that would be on the central bank's balance sheet. And then that ledger would plug into the global ledger that would be controlled by, and when I say Klaus Schwab types, I'm talking about the IMF, the, B, the BIS, the World Economic Forum, the UN, the EU, you know, uh, one of those types of entities, if not a combination of, of all of them. And so this is really why it's so important to think of these things in terms of, of ledgers. So one of the things that prompted this discussion was something going around on, on Twitter from some uh, individuals that were very free market oriented and very, I don't know if they were Austrians, but they, they were very, you know, all about decentralization. And they were talking about how unfair it is for the average Joe and Jane not to get the same interest rate as Jamie Dimon. Because Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan, you know, their reserves are, or some of their reserves are held on the Fed's balance sheet. It's a liability of the Fed. And as most of your viewers know, that the Fed's going to increase interest rates to, let's say, 5, 5.25%. That's somewhere in the middle there is what they're paying on these reserves. So while J.P. Morgan, while Jamie Dimon's customers are only getting 1%, let's say, J.P. Diamond is getting, is getting 5%. They pointed out how ridiculous this is and how it's completely unfair. And they actually argued that, therefore, what we should do is give people the option of having an account with the Fed just like Jamie Diamond or just like Wells Fargo or just like uh, Bank of America, something like that. And I said, whoa, 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 time out. You don't understand what you're doing there. Hey, because, George, can I stop you? Let, yeah, yeah. let me, because you're so hip deep in this. You, let me make sure we're not losing people. So before you sure, tell sure. them what the, let me make sure they get like, yeah, what's going on? It's not, let me, and I was prey to this too. So folks, I'm not picking on anybody that I was. So again, as George is saying, regular people, even regular companies can't have checking accounts with the Federal Reserve itself. It's like the banker's bank. And so there's big, like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, those big inst banking institutions, commercial investment, big, they're the ones that have checking accounts with the Fed. And so like part of what the monetary base is, it's like, yeah, the physical currency and also banks reserves with the Fed. Like that's legal tender money, the way our system works right now. And, um, and so since two, in the fall of 2008, I guess October specifically, right? Remember folks, there was the financial crisis. From that point, the Fed began paying interest on reserves. That was a new, it had been authorized by statute earlier, but they implemented it then. And so that and, and that was a new thing. The system with reserves. Yes, and, and you know, and I was making jokes at the time about like, yeah, the, the, um, they said they wanted to bail out Wall Street to save Main Street, but also what they started doing was paying banks to not lend money to their customers. Like that was the way I was saying. That's one way of thinking. What's interest on reserves is the Fed saying to the banks, "Keep your reserves parked with us, and we'll pay you for that." Where you know, be whereas before the commercial banks, that was like considered you know a loss. Like if you just keep your money parked at the Fed, you get zero. If you lend it out to somebody, you at least you get something. Whereas now the Fed was competing, you know, with and the, and the Fed's guaranteed. Like the Fed is going to be good for it. If they say we're going to give you interest, they can because they just it's just a, a ledger entry. Like George said, that's kind of like the MMT point. There's not like a pile of zeros and ones the fed has to draw down they can just add more numbers to people's checking accounts i mean it has economic consequences but there's no physical constraint and so that's the system that's been in place so now yeah when the fed says we're raising interest rates they don't necessarily mean we're selling off assets sucking reserves out of the system now there's more scarcity in the loanable funds market and so on the margin the interest rate on the fed funds thing goes up which is what textbook used to be 
Now yeah, it could be. Just, yeah, they just. just pay I, more. I don't want to cut you off there. I would disagree yeah. with that as well. That that textbook thing, as far as how the interest rates work prior to QE. But keep going, keep going. I don't want to go down yeah, that rabbit hole. Right, whether or not it's right or wrong, but that was that was the textbook thing. And I'm yeah, saying clearly yeah. they have an inst- yeah. different issue now. You know, when the Fed raises interest rates, how do the, well, gee, how do you make the interest rate go from five to five point two five? Is it yeah. easy? We just instead of us paying five percent, now we're paying them five point two five, and they would be fools to lend it out to anyone for less than that because the Fed is obviously good for it. Like there's zero risk keeping your money parked at the Fed. And so that, of course, is going to have a ladder effect on everything else. So that's the deal. And then people and um, and like there was the narrow bank. This don't worry, George's monologue is almost over. But like the narrow bank, the TNB, they applied. And then what they wanted to do is by narrow, they just meant we're not making loans. We're just taking institutional money. We're going to have, a, a I guess, a master account with the Fed. And then we're going to just going to park it. We're going to earn the reserves that the Fed, you know, the interest on reserves the Fed pays, and we'll pass most of that on to our customers. That's all we're going to do. And then, hey, there's no risk of a bank run, right? Because we're not making mortgages, and so that money's there. And so we're all talking about stability, and this is airtight. You know, talk about wind tunnel, you know, boom. And the Fed kept dragging their feet, and it was a very, you know, perfunctory thing to sign off on that application because they were registered like Connecticut. They were like a state bank, and they just wanted to get access to the Fed. And the Fed kept saying no, and so the cynics were saying, "Oh yeah, because the big, bo- you know, the big boys don't want to let other people into their club. They're getting the interest on reserves. But if this narrow bank is allowed to effectively pass it through to their customers, then every company is going to switch their account to them. And so the Fed wanted to nip that in the bud. And so it looks cynical. Oh yeah, this is unfair. We all want to get on the action. Okay, so now George, I'll hand it over to you. What, what, what are we missing? What's the danger in in saying this isn't fair? Joe Schmo should get the same interest rate that Jamie Dimon gets." Yeah, we so should all right have now, accounts with the Fed. Right. So right now, whether your viewer has a, a, an account with Wells Fargo, B of A, Citi, whatever, uh, your dollars are a liability of that bank. And what Bob is saying there is that right now, JP Morgan, their dollar or some of their dollars are a liability of the Fed. So the Fed can pay them whatever interest rate they want because the Fed has an infinite balance sheet. So in the future, I think one thing that we need to be wary of is the Federal Reserve and people that are sitting there pounding the table saying, no CBDC, no CBDC, no CBDC, but we should all have an account with the Fed because that's what makes it uh, you know, equal and that's what makes it fair because the Fed is paying Jamie Dimon a higher interest rate. You know, that's when if you have this knowledge, you step in and say, no, 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 no. We, we might want a better interest rate, but we do not. The last thing we want is for our deposits to become a liability of the Federal Reserve. Why? That's the question. Why? Because when you go through a, a list of all the things that we rightfully should be concerned with, with a central bank digital currency, none of those are possible uh, for the most part without those deposits being a liability of the Fed uh, or a central bank being on one ledger, a unified ledger, if you will. So if we go down the list here, I apologize for looking down here, but I'm just looking at my notes we talked about, and everyone knows about the big brother stuff, the social score, the climate score, being able to monitor your transactions. Well, that's almost impossible unless we have all of this data consolidated onto one ledger system, or at least the ledgers are quote unquote unified. And they'd also have to implement, implement like a point of sale software. A lot of people are rightfully concerned about negative interest rates, but I think they should also be concerned with artificially high interest rates. Uh, the Fed could do either or, but those would be very difficult if those liabilities are still part of the commercial banking system. 
a freezing account, same thing. Uh, Narrative-based credit, I don't think this gets enough discussion. Uh, in the future, and I think this is definitely the way we're going when you look at reparations and all these things that they're talking about in California, you know, why would we not lend based on narrative? Or who is most deserving? Why are we even considering a credit score? Well, because the bank has to be paid back. Why do they have to be paid back? Because they got a P&L, they've got a balance sheet, they can't have negative equity. But if all of those deposit liabilities go to the Fed's balance sheet, well, now we can start issuing loans uh, or a mortgage. You can determine uh, interest rates, not based on you having an 800 credit score compared to someone with a 500 credit score, but we just completely eliminate that. But are you part of some sort of disadvantaged group or are you part of some group that has had um, – you know, maybe disproportionate advantage, like maybe you're a straight, a straight white Christian male. Well, in that case, just because you're in that category, well, obviously you should be paying a much, much higher interest rate because of the white privilege that you have had since birth. And maybe someone else that's in a different group, you know, they have a 500 credit score, but we're going to give them an interest-free million-dollar loan. Why? Because they deserve it. Now, the commercial banks can't do that right now. But if the Fed was the only bank, if there was just one ledger, they cannot go bust. They could easily do this. But again, it requires all of those commercial liabilities, those dollar liabilities right now to go from the commercial bank's balance sheet over to the Fed. And that's why we need to be so uh, worry of this. You know, one thing I'd like to read to you really quick, Bob, is uh, this Wikipedia, and I'm just going to shoot over this really quick here. This is on the Gauze Bank, and uh, for, I'm sure you know this, but for your listeners who don't know, this was the one bank they had in the Soviet Union between 1922 and basically 1992. The central bank and the commercial banks were one and the same. Mm -hmm. In other words, we had one ledger, one ledger. So everyone's uh, currency units in Russia, was, if they were banking, you know, the bank, uh, were a liability of that commercial bank, one ledger. Okay, so let me read this to you. And keep in mind, this is before computers, this is before any of the talk of CBDC, any of that. The Soviet state used God's Bank primarily as a tool to impose centralized control upon industry in general, using bank balances and transaction histories to monitor the activity of individual concerns and their compliance with the five-year plans and directives of the government. So uh, hopefully this sounds exactly like a current day uh, CBDC or our concerns about the CBDC. God's Bank did not act as a commercial bank in regard to profit motive. It acted theoretically as an instrument of the government policy instead of independently and impartially ass assessing creditworthiness of the borrower, Gauze Bank would provide loan funds to favored individuals, groups, and industries as directed by the central government. Pretty much everything that we are concerned with about a CBDC, they had in 1922 in Russia, not because they had computers and all this money that uh, you know had some sort of software coded and in we're it. We're using blockchain, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right. Simply because they had everything on one ledger. And, and that is really what I try to pound the table on in social media. And I try to get people to understand. Great. Yeah. So this is great. Let's unpack this. And folks, you know, this may be a bit redundant, but this is really critical, everybody. So I want you to get what George is saying. So yeah, you're right. A lot of the people who, yeah, we don't want Fed coin. And so people thought that, and understandably so, like it's not that it was a, it was a silly thing to think that because of the marketing too, it was like, oh, well, there's Bitcoin. And then you had all these federal officials coming forward saying, well, you can't trust these private 
you know, unregulated digital currencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, because, you know, who, who's no, we don't know what they're doing. They don't have reserves or anything. They don't have the full faith and credit and the regulatory apparatus to protect the consumer that, you know, sovereign uh, fiat currencies currently have. They, they might not have said fiat because that's a kind of a loaded term. And, and so that's what, you know, we want to, what we're going to do with these central bank digital currencies is combine the best of both worlds that will have the convenience of, you know, digital currencies and everything like that. But with the safeguards and blah, 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 and consumer protection standards that you have come to know and trust with it when it comes to the U.S. government, whatever. And so you're right. So people were getting on their guard, and like Ron DeSantis, and everybody's all geared up with their you know defenses up for this new type of coin. Like Fed coin, like they're going to yes, announce it right. or something Right, it's going like to be that. a blockchain yeah. thing, but, it, but it's going to be run by the central bank as opposed to a decentralized ledger kind of thing. But it's still, they, they were thinking it's going to be like Bitcoin, except the government's going to issue it. Whereas we've got these dollars that we've been using with, you know, my ATM and blah, blah, blah. And that, I mean, that's just old school. That's not a central bank digital currency. That's just dollars. Right. And your point is, well, no, you need to know what's the plumbing. They don't even need to call it something. They can still call it U.S. dollars. And the issue is just if it's all, if you just have, if your checking account, when you put in your ATM card, if that's going to the account held with the Fed and it's their ledger, and it, you're right. It doesn't need to be some new fa- – it could be on an Excel spreadsheet in principle. They could, I mean, it could be punch cards, really. Yeah, <laughs> but so, I mean, be- this, this takes us to a great thought mm-hmm. experiment uh, or what I think is a great thought experiment mm-hmm. that I, I try to encourage people to, to go through just to prove the point. Because everyone says, oh, they're going to come out with this new currency. They're going to call it FedCoin or something like that. And you're going to have to choose between using dollars and – Fed corner. I say, no, 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 no. You won't even know. They'll, they'll, and by the way, I don't think they're going to come out and announce it. Why would they do that? That makes no sense. They know that there's all this negative PR around a CBDC. So why would Biden or Jerome Powell or something say, oh, by the way, we're doing this new thing when they know they'd get a lot of pushback on social media? No, they're not even going to announce it. So uh, the thought experiment I always encourage people to do is how do you know you're not using a CBDC right now? Like you think that your dollars, that you have an account with Wells Fargo, how do you know that? Like, and if, if by chance Wells Fargo just transferred those deposit liabilities to the Fed balance sheet, you think you'd know about that? No, you'd still have your card, you'd still go about your day, you'd still go down to Starbucks, you'd go to Panera Bread, you'd go to the grocery store, you'd pay your car insurance. You would have absolutely no idea that those currency units, your assets were a liability of the Federal Reserve, and they were collecting all of this information that they could then use to go ahead and issue that social score. You wouldn't know we had a CBDC until the symptoms of the CBDC start to come to surface. In other words, they start enacting those big brother type of components that we referred to earlier. But here's another thing that I think people really get wrong, Bob, is uh, they believe that the federal government is going to thrust, it's going to force this upon the public. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to put a gun to your head and they're going to say, we know you want to use you know, cash or whatever, but you can't anymore. You're going to have to use this CBDC or else you're going to jail or something like that. And I think it's going to be the complete opposite because what most people do is they get fixated on the downside of a, social, uh, uh, of a, a central bank digital currency, but they forget about the features. Now, I'm not talking about you and I saying that these are our features, although I think we'd have to admit that they are. But I'm talking about looking at this through the lens of the normie, through the lens of the average Joe. So if we have everything unified onto a ledger, that means we have instant settlement, instant settlement. And basically, you kind of turn base money into broad money. So you have no bank 
banks can't go bust. Depositors cannot take a haircut. Like I said, they can pay you any type of interest rate they would like to. They could pay you above and beyond what they're paying JP Morgan. And let's look at, you know, just a recent, tra- or recent transactions here. You know that I live in Columbia, and a lot of people are expats. They live overseas and whatnot. And what you could do is you could transfer your dollars into pesos. You could transfer your dollars directly into an account of, let's say, a, a, a seller. You're buying a property in Columbia. You could do that instantaneously, instant settlement, and it would all be free of charge. So for the normie who doesn't even understand the back-end implications, you know, this is going to seem like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And what I think the central planners will do is they'll just roll out these features gradually, Bob. They're not going to come right out with a, a social score. They're just going to say, oh, hey, we've got this new feature, you know, part of FedNow that's, uh, that allows instant settlement. So you can do this 24-7, 365 days a year. So the average Joe looks at that, oh, well, wow. Well, that's just fantastic. Boy, you know, Bob and George keep telling me to hate the banks. Maybe they're, they're doing something for the little guy here. And then the next thing they roll out is, by the way, next time you go to Mexico, you can go ahead and trade your dollars for pesos instantly, free of charge, free of charge. We, we won't even take a, a haircut or a spread or anything. And if you want to go ahead and transfer your dollars into pesos instantly and then transfer those pesos into the account of a, a Mexican business, that would prefer pesos, you can do that instantly, 24-7-365, and you can do that free of charge. And so there again, the average Joe, wow, whoa, man, I used to hate this Jamie Dimon guy, but boy, I, I'm, I'm starting to warm up to him, you know? So they keep rolling out these features, and then what they do is they get everyone plugged into the network, and then, you know, after four or five years or whatever, they start rolling out, oh, well, you know, just because... Of course, we want to manage disinformation and misinformation, and we've got all these, you know, the world's a crazy place. So we're going to just issue this little score here. Nothing big, but it just determines or just uh, tracks what you do on social media. And then, you know, we're going to adjust people's interest rate and whatnot based on their, uh, you know, willingness or, you know, are they talking about, are they pushing back against vaccine mandates? Well, if so, we know that's not good for the general public. So why should that person get the interest rate on a loan that someone that's behaving is, right? So they just gradually roll this out. And another thought experiment I use, because a lot of people say, oh, well, that's going to be it. I'm never going to use that again. But, you know, once they come out that social score, well, don't be so sure. Because right now, if I told you, hey, if you continue to use your cell phone starting tomorrow, the government is going to give you a social score based on your cell phone usage. How many people, how many libertarians, how many people listening to this podcast right now would stop using their smartphone just tomorrow because, nope, I'm not buying into the government's, uh, you know, social score scheme. Very few people would drop right. that. Cell That'd phone. be like nope. asking me to turn a kidney in. Yeah. <laughs> they'd rationalize it. They'd say, oh, well, Bob and George have been warning me about this CBDC, but I don't know. There, there's fear mongering. I mean, is it that big of a deal? I mean, I'm not breaking the law. And if, it, you know, what have I got to hide? So what if the government knows, you know, what I've been doing and I've been buying too much beef or diesel? I mean, they already knew that. You know, they, they just right. rationalize right, it away. Right, right. I use and, the roads or, well, if there's millions of us, you know, I'm not going to stick out. And Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this is my big concern. It, it, it's, it's, it's the misunderstanding of the plumbing uh, allows the central planners to pull the wool over people's eyes long enough to where they're so integrated into the network that most of them will want it to survive. And the last thing they'll want to do is leave the system. 
Yeah. So let's um, let's just drive home and make sure people understand why the, what the necessary and sufficient conditions are and why you keep stressing it's the ledger that's the issue, not you know, is it is it a thing called a you know is it is it a, a, a coin that's on a blockchain or whatever? Like that's not so much that the critical thing. So yeah, in principle, if everybody just had a checking account directly with the Fed. And that's what, and so when you went into the grocery store and you swiped your, you know, you got a hundred dollars in groceries, you know, again, not a hundred fed coins in groceries, a hundred dollars in groceries. Just like you're doing now. No change. You swiped at all. your thing. And instead of the, the grocery store interacting with bank of America or Wells Fargo, it interacted with the federal reserve and it just, and the fed checked and said, yep, Robert Murphy and his account with us has $360. So he can afford to pay a hundred and now he's got 260. And where's that two? It's on the Fed's ledger. It went from saying 360, the debit now, so it's 260. And the grocery store, if it's Kroger, their account went from 1 million now to 1 million 100. So it's just the Fed changing its entries on the ledger. It's keeping Yeah, they're just keeping every, score. There's keeping everybody, score. Yeah, in the US. That's this kind of. Um, so George's point is if, the, if it gets to that point, all of the things that you worry about FedCoin are true in that scenario. Well, they, they have the ability to implement every single one of your concerns. And if they don't centralize the ledger, they don't have the ability to implement your concerns. That, that's, I think, the, the, the main point. Yeah, yeah. So let's, well, let's make sure they, they see why if they, do, if they have that, then it's game over. So what, how do they turn it like, oh, oh I'm, I'm accused of a crime or something. Or, you know, they don't like, I go to the grocery store, I swipe it, and the, the Fed says, Internally, yeah, he does have 360, but you know what? We've got a, a hold on his account because, you know, we didn't like his post on Twitter. And so they just tell the, the grocery store, no, we're, we're not going to credit your account 100. So, and then the grocery store tells me, yeah, sorry, they got rejected. And that's going to be true anywhere I go. And especially if we get to the point where there's no cash or cash is, you know, has been discontinued or a lot of places don't accept cash. Um, now I can't buy anything. And so that's, you know, that's how they have you. So all, again, all the things. So now George, what people say, well, what hope is, or, or I can see people saying, well, how is the present system any better? Like, what, what do I care whether it's, whether it's one big brother or whether it's 19 uncles or something, whatever the metaphor would be that, you know, Wells Fargo is not my buddy. And so how does that, how does that make it any different if it's not Wells? It seems like it's just an extra layer on top of that. And the bank's, the commercial banks could go bankrupt if there's a bank run. So isn't it just, you know, the same kind of deal, but now there's even less certainty. Uh, well, the first thing that I'd say is whatever your concerns are with the CBDC, uh, that that's not possible. If the, if we have those 19 banks uh, or, or 5,000 banks, if it's completely decentralized, because how do the central planners get the information that they need in order to implement the credit score or to, uh, excuse me, the social score or to adjust the social score based on what you're purchasing. And so there'd be actually two steps required here, Bob. They'd have to centralize ledgers or unify it. You know, they could have separate ledgers, but all the data would have to go to the Fed's balance sheet or whatever database they were using. But you'd also have to have a point of sale software that would be unique, would be different from what we have today. And I think they'll probably implement that through the IRS. I've talked about that with my good buddy, uh, Robert Barnes, because right now, if you go to Chipotle, your bank account, your Wells Fargo, let's say, they're going to know that you spent $20 with Chipotle. You just go on your bank statement, it says Chipotle, you know, the date, and then $20. But they don't know whether you bought tofu or steak. 
You see, so that's what would have to change at the business level is they'd have to start using this um, universal software that I think they'll do it through the IRS that would say what the individual purchase or the details of the individual purchase. And then that would go to this centralized database where they could process it with artificial intelligence and and then uh, create that social score to determine what you can and can't do. But it's all about that centralization and that point of sale software. And then we talk about that narrative-based lending. A bank can't do that. A bank cannot do that. Uh, so if we have 19 banks or 5,000 or whatever, as long as your dollars are a liability of an entity that is concerned about profit and loss and that can go bust, you're going to have credit-based lending, you know, unless the, the Fed's buying the debt or something like that. Um, but if, in, if they're going to implement these you know, reparations, UBI is another example, if they're going to try to increase the velocity of money in the future by saying that you have to spend it by this amount of date, again, that requires that the dollar liabilities go to the Fed's balance sheet because it requires being on a balance sheet or a balance sheet of an entity that cannot go bust, that can easily have negative equity. And we know that, that the Fed can because they've got negative equity right now. Well, there was uh, also, let me just make sure, because I think some people, when they're viewing it as a all or nothing, black and white, that, oh, if, if you're just a complete pariah, you know, you're... Osama bin Laden or something, and yeah, they shut you down. But no, there's there's zones, and there was even a guy. I'm sure you saw this, George. Maybe we can find. We'll insert the clip, folks, if we can find it here. Um, I don't want to overpromise, but it was making the rounds where the guy said something like, and he was, I think he was connected with the WEF, saying, you know, and we could do a thing with a central bank digital currency where you know if, if somebody shouldn't be buying a firearm, we could just not authorize those transactions. Right. You could have, as I argue in my book, a potentially better and some people might see it or a darker world where the government decides that units of central bank money can be used to purchase some things, but not other things that it deems less desirable, like, say, ammunition or drugs or pornography or something of the sort. And that is very powerful in terms of the use of a CBDC. Right. So it's not just an all or nothing. Are you allowed to participate in commerce? They could say certain people can't buy guns. And then, you know, how would that work? Well, it wouldn't be that they'd be on a no gun list necessarily. It would just be that the gun dealers, when they go to run into, to, for a purchase, the bank would know, that you know, the central bank would know, oh, wait a minute, this is a firearms transaction. This person is on our list of who's not allowed to have a gun. And so we're just not going to disperse the funds. And I think, too, that's a way they could kind of skirt constitutional issues and say, oh, no, we're not saying you can't buy a gun. We're just saying you can't use dollars through our system to pay for one. But if that's the only really effective way you can ever pay somebody for anything, then that's a, it's kind of the same thing, even though they might argue legally, well, no, we're not violating the Second Amendment by doing that. We're just, this is monetary policy. Yeah, one of my biggest concerns, Bob, is what we see playing out right now in China. And that's mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, you talk about uh, Bitcoin being a solution, gold, silver. I think those are part of the solution, but they're by no means a panacea. Because I think going back to this point of sale software, they'll, they'll require your identity before you make a purchase. Mm -hmm. Therefore, regardless of if you're using green pieces of paper or gold or Bitcoin, they're still going to know that and that's still going to be attached to or factor into your social score. What we're seeing in China right now is if you have a bad or a negative social score, they're not allowing you to travel. They're just mm -hmm. simply taking your ID. And so... You know, one of the things that I think about a lot is, okay, if they implement this, well, I'm just going to go to some other country where I'm, I'm treated better or something like that. 
uh, and then I or where I can use my cash or I can use my gold or I can use my Bitcoin. But if you get on the wrong side of things, uh, you know, you could find yourself in the United States to where, sure, you've got all this Bitcoin, you've got all this gold, you've got all this silver, cash, whatever, but you can't leave because you don't have a passport or your passport's completely uh, invalid. And if you don't think they can pull that off, I would remind people to go right back to 2020 and see how far you could get outside of the United States, even with a U.S. passport. And I don't care if you're a trillionaire, I don't care how much gold or Bitcoin or real estate or dollars you have, you're not leaving the U.S. because no country will let you in based on a U.S. passport. So just think about that. If you didn't have that passport to begin with, what, what do you do? Where do you go? And I think that's something that people really need to think about. Okay, so I think we've done a good job of alerting people to these dangers and clearly they realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't just clamor to get the same interest on reserves that Jamie Dimon gets um, because that, you know, and by the way, I think what they'll do, George, is make it optional at first. You know, they, they might open it up to like major companies and whatever and then just gradually roll it out. Totally. And agree. then and then people will feel like suckers. Like, wait a minute, why am I getting 1% in my commercial bank when I could be getting 4% with an account directly with the Fed. This, that's a no-brainer. And, yeah, then and if the banking that. crisis continues, Bob, people are going to run toward the Fed because right. why would I risk taking a haircut with Silicon Valley Bank or my regional bank when I could just take my dollars, move it to the Fed, and I have zero chance of a haircut? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, okay, so I think that's clearly like the way they would do it. And you know, they, they might allow, you know, they wouldn't outlaw commercial banks. They'd say, no, go ahead, but just people doing the math realize this is stupid and they all switch over and the commercial banks go out of business one by one. I don't know if they even go out of business because I think still think the Fed would utilize them okay. for the uh, loan origination. So very similar to what they do right now with Fannie and Freddie. You know, okay. the, yeah, yeah. Wells Fargo isn't going to keep that loan on their books. They're, they're going to sell that to Fannie and Freddie before the ink's dry. Uh, but they're just going to take kind of a fee and they don't care if they're getting a, a, a big enough fee. And the Fed, I don't think, is really going to want to deal with the average Joe as far as the, the lending. But what they'd have is lending guidelines that for the loan originators, they would have to abide by. And part of that would be your social score. Okay, yeah. And also you're, you're addressing, because I did get pushback when I had you on a different podcast a few months ago. I got some pushback from someone like, yeah, I love Jordan, but that's never going to happen because the commercial banks – wouldn't allow it because they would no, they'd be able to look this. Yeah, they'd look too much ahead. Why do I want to deal with a stupid customer when I could make just as much money, if not more, just being a loan originator? Well, well, right. So you answered the question that, that that's what they would be doing. So they're still they would have a role to play because they they could just be completely cut out of it. You know, the Fed wouldn't do everything because then there's nothing left for the commercial banks to do, and they're a pretty powerful group of people that couldn't just be written off. So yeah, I think you've answered like the show. Yeah, and at the end of the day, J.P. Morgan owns the Fed. Right. So it's Gauss Bank, you know, at a, cer at a certain level. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but I, I think the good news here, I know you wanted to, to get into that. I, I do think that there is, there is some good news, and, but it requires being prepared. And I think that one of my main messages is don't assume – we're, we're dealing with a very strong opponent right now. And I always use the example of John Jones in the, the UFC. I don't know if you're a big UFC fan, but John Jones is regarded by most as the best uh, UFC fighter to ever step in the, in the octagon. So, Bob, if you and I are fighting John Jones in two weeks, mm -hmm. are we going to look at his weaknesses or are we going to look at his weaknesses and his strengths? <laughs> Obviously, if we want to win this, if we don't want to get pummeled, uh, we are going to look at both. And we're going to be very cognizant of both his strengths and his weaknesses 
Therefore, we can come up with the, 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 the best game plan to have the highest probability of maybe not winning, but even surviving with John Jones. And it's the exact same thing with this CBDC. We can't bury our head in the sand and say, oh, this doesn't have any features. Oh, this is draconian. Oh, this is this, this is this, this is this. When in reality, it's going to have a lot of features that the average Joe and Jane are going to absolutely love. Going to absolutely. So we have to be honest with ourselves about that first and foremost. And then I think we also have to be honest in the sense that there's a no certainty is only probabilities, but I think right now the probability is extremely high that we do have a CBDC within the next, call it five years. And I think that uh, it's very high that we will have a social score. But I think the probability, especially in the United States, is very low that the states will actually recognize the social score. The way I think through this is very same. It's very similar to the uh, vaccine mandate that we had, I call it the medicine mandate, that we had uh, in, in 2020, 2021, that, yeah, sure, you could have that, that, uh, that card, right, that said that, you had got, that you'd received the medicine. But if you're in Texas, that does, it doesn't even matter. Like, no one is checking your, your card to let you into a restaurant. Where if you're in New York, then it really, really matters. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying there is I think that everyone will probably have a social score, you know, if you look on the BIS's website or the Fed's website or something like that. But if you're in Texas, you're not even we're gonna it's not even gonna really matter, or in Florida or something like that, because the local government isn't even gonna recognize like it's not even a thing. Who cares? Where if you go to New York or California, oh, it's gonna completely dictate how you can live your life. So I so the good news there is I think that there's gonna be some uh, differentiation between jurisdictions and within the United States itself and from country to country. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so as you know, like part of what I'm doing with Infineo and other places where you know, we're trying to build up infrastructures and financial payments. And I know like at your uh, rebel capitalist live event, a lot of people there are working on like parallel systems and things like that. Is it, is that complementary to what you're talking about that like just so groups of people so people might, yeah, my, my U.S. dollar account got shut down, but you know what? I have all these other things. And the important thing is I'm a, in a network of people who are willing to trade with me based on these other forms of payment. This is going to be crucial. Okay. Yeah, because it, I, I've gone over this in a whiteboard video, you know, assuming this is the way it plays out. And again, I want to be very clear. This is just my ideas. I, I've thought through it a lot, but there are no certainties. Um, but if the, it plays out this way, I think people have to accept the fact that for a certain amount of time, you're going to have to live within this system. Now, it's not going to be forever, but, you know, if this – people push back with Bitcoin and different uh, techniques that you're referring to and gold and whatnot. And I agree. That is definitely part of the solution. But this takes a long time. You know, right now, if you tried to live your life spending only Bitcoin for a week – You'd have a tough time. You know, you right. couldn't pay your rent. You couldn't, maybe if you lived in El Salvador. But if you lived in these other places, that would be very difficult. You would still have to take that Bitcoin and turn it into dollars, or the uh, store business would have to take those Bitcoin and turn them into dollars. You'd need this on ramp type of off ramp thing. But um, so if they implemented the CBDC tomorrow, Bob, I don't think the infrastructure is set up there. I don't think there are enough businesses that are willing to trade with individuals for something outside of dollars to where you could maintain your standard of living. It would be like uh, kind of living in an Am- Amish community or something like that, which may be fine for most mm-hmm. people, uh, but most people wouldn't really want that. So what you have to do is you got to think of some sort of hybrid system 
right? And so let's just assume that you have to have an account there because you got to get paid. How are you going to get your paycheck? You know, unless you have a bank account and the only account is with the Fed. So how do you get around that? So I think that you have to get paid from your employer. You don't have a choice. And then you go ahead and make some of your, your payments, rent, whatever you have to do. But then if you could take anything left over and maybe if they still allow this, then maybe turn that into Bitcoin or turn that into gold or silver and you use that for kind of your dry powder. And then when you have to transact and you can do it outside of the system, then you go ahead and take that Bitcoin or gold or silver and you either transact with that or if that's not an option, which it won't be everywhere, then you turn that into cash. And then you kind of just use that as kind of a a hybrid type of system to buy time until we can build up this network and this infrastructure for a, 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 um, a, a payment system that's parallel to that current payment system that has enough goods and services on it that you can actually uh, transfer over to that parallel system completely without reducing your standard of living. Yeah, yeah. I think that a lot of us have kind of landed on that same solution and realizing that yeah, it's probably not going to be able to stop the introduction of these other things we're talking about instead, you know, building up duplicate or redundant systems. I think they fall victim to this idea that, okay, well, when they roll this out, no problem. I'm just going to go ahead and transact with gold, silver, and Bitcoin and tell them to pound sand. Well, (laughs) again, you got to be careful of that because not Mm. too many people, uh, you know, when you look at a basket of all the goods and services that you buy on a daily basis, uh, not, you know, most likely you can't get a hundred percent of those if, most likely a very small fraction mm-hmm. with uh, using those as, as payment methods. So again, it, it's not that it won't happen, but this may be, let's say, 10 years down the line. Uh, you know, one of the problems with Bitcoin, as an example, is very volatile. Now, it might not be volatile forever. Uh, there's a lot of different factors that could make it less and less and less volatile. And then it could be a much more, um, uh, it, it could be far more desirable from the normie standpoint because you don't have these massive swings and therefore accepted by a lot more businesses than it is today and yada, yada, yada. But that's going to even, you know, the Bitcoin maxis say realistically that's going to take five, 10 plus years. It's not going to happen overnight. So my point is if we get this CBDC before then, which we very well could, we've got to think of how we navigate that system uh, before we get to a point where we've set up this this, uh, parallel kind of economy. I always say, you know, one thing I say on my, my whiteboards, I say, don't hesitate, just navigate. Mm-hmm. Because so many people get so f- caught up with fear, they lose sleep that they can't even, they can't take action. They can't even think about this. They get so hesitant. But don't right. get, don't hesitate, just learn how to navigate. I think I need to start building up a tolerance for tofu. That's what yeah. I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or at least, or at least have someone within your community that is a big fan of uh, tofu. This is another way that you can kind of maybe navigate mm-hmm. is if you consume a lot of diesel, let's say, but your buddy consumes a lot of meat and, and, and uh, let's say that, um, you know, he doesn't consume any diesel and you don't consume any meat or something like that, then he can buy what you use more of and you can buy what he uses more of. And you just got to figure out a way to communicate that within your inner circle. But there, the, the this is the way we have to start to think. We can't just put our head in the sand and say that nobody's going to want this CBDC because it's got a social credit score. Right. Yeah. Or that it's a somehow a competing currency or something like that. We've got to be aware of the plumbing. Yeah. And it is unfortunate. It's sort of a shame that 
we knew we know if, if even if 70 percent probably not even that many just said no we're not doing this period it wouldn't happen but they'll figure out a way like you said they, they won't be forced to do it it'll people will want they'll clamor for this thing but this and, is one of the I've thought about this a lot. I said, okay, yes, it is true. Throughout history, one of the ways that we win is just for a small vocal percentage to stand up and say no. That's it. No. Mm -hmm. Whether whether it's Romania in 1989, whether it's the truckers in Canada, the same thing. They just stand up and say no. The problem with that is that if they implement the CBDC, most people won't even know about it. Right, right. In fact, we could could be using a CBDC right now, Bob, both of us, and not even know that Mm -hmm. we're doing it. So how do we know when to even stand up and say no yeah. if, we, if, if it's not right there in front of our eyes? And then who do you say no to, by the way? Let's just say that it's a global unified ledger and that it's run by the BIS and the World Economic Forum and all these, and all these different jurisdictions throughout the entire world. Who do you stand up and say no to? It, it becomes a, a tricky question. Yeah, so to be clear for folks, like what we're doing right now and why I had you on and why you're going around enunciating is you are trying to alert people. So it's, it's not that you're thrown in the towel in terms of education and just having the citizenry be informed, no, but no, you no. are, you're no, saying, I'm, let's not I, put I, all our eggs in that one basket. I'm trying to tell people that we're going into a fight with John Jones. Mm-hmm. Now, now we can win, but we will not win if we just say, Oh, this guy's a, a, a you know, he's, he's old. He's, you know, list all of these things. Why somehow, you know, his weaknesses. Now, mm-hmm. now, now you're setting yourself up to fail. But what we have to do is we have to acknowledge that John Jones is the best of all time, of all time. And we've got to look at his weaknesses, but we also have to acknowledge his strengths. We've got to be realistic about this, for heaven's sakes, if we want any hope of winning. Yeah. Okay, so where do people, you keep talking about your wiper, where do people go to to hear more of you if you've intrigued them? Uh, They can just go to George Gammon on YouTube and my George Gammon channel comes up with the whiteboard videos or I've got another channel called Rebel Capitalist where I do live stream and talk about these issues nonstop. Okay, great. So thanks, George, for your time. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Then thank you folks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed that and we'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.